So you may have heard this one already, and if you have, I'm not sorry. Why is a moon rock tastier than an earth rock? I am. Because it's a little meatier. A groan is as good as a laugh. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Again, it's me again. We're going to have some fun today. You see, um, Chris did something for me this time he hasn't really done before. And he said, I'm going to be gone on June 4th. He's off visiting Josh, his son, who is back from Africa, um, who just got back from his deployment, or he's getting some time off. Either way, they're getting some well-needed family time this weekend. And he said, I need somebody to preach. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Sure, sure. What do you want me to preach on? And he told me, he looked at me and he said, pick whatever you want. Ooh. Oh, the choices, the choices. So I thought we would do something kind of fun today, you know, and, and something that I'm personally interested in, something that I think will kind of help, you know, edify, teach all of us. And, 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 and it, it's something I think that it, we all really do need to understand. But, but to set this up, to set this up, I want to begin by introducing you to someone that for close to the last 15 years of my life has been a pretty influential figure on me. This man is a person whose I, I have admired his tenacity. I, he, he constantly perseveres through every adversity and no matter how what he attempts fails... He always picks things back up and tries again. He, he's a family man doing his best to raise his daughter. He's just, he's a very inspiring figure. So everybody, I would like you to meet one of my heroes, Heinz Doofenshmirtz. Yes, I hear some applause. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Now, I am going to die on these sheets up here. I'm tripping all over the place. Excuse me, on the moon. I'm not, I'm, I'm on the moon right now. So Heinz is a character from a cartoon show called Phineas and Ferb. Raise your hand if you are familiar with Phineas and Ferb. Is that it? Oh my goodness. Phineas and Ferb might be the greatest cartoon that's ever been, ever been made. I'm, I'm dead serious and I've been watching cartoons for a long time. But Heinz, I guess you could kind of call him the antagonist. He's a... So, uh, no, we, we can have words later. It's alright. It's okay. I'll, I'll fight for Phineas and Ferb, man. But... He is kind of the antagonist, but he's not really a bad guy. He runs Doofenshmirtz Evil Incorporated. And through this, he comes up with all kinds of nefarious plans that are really more annoying than actually nefarious. And he's constantly foiled by his arch nemesis, Perry the Platypus. You have to watch the show to know, okay? It's great. But I was watching this with the boys. Well, they, they had Phineas and Ferb on a couple of weeks ago. And I'm sitting there. I think I'm playing like solitaire on my phone or something like that. And this scene comes on where Heinz is sitting behind a computer doing a, uh, like a video chat with a colleague of his. And this video colleague of his is kind of egging him on a little bit. And they come into this thing where he, he's like, well... You know, they were talking about his 17-year-old daughter, Vanessa, and how she didn't really want to, you know, play catch with him or something like that. And this guy looks at Heinz and said, wouldn't you rather have a daughter? Or, excuse me, wouldn't you rather have a son than a daughter? And Heinz says, what do you want me to say? Do you want me to say that I wish I'd have never had a daughter, that I'd have a son that would do the things with me that I want to do? And guess who's standing five feet behind Heinz? His 17-year-old daughter, right? And all she heard was... I wish I'd never had a daughter. Is that what he was saying? 
No, he was pushing back against this other guy, but that's what she heard out of context. She didn't see the big picture. She didn't see the whole message. She didn't know what it was he was advocating for, okay? So here's my question to us this morning. Have you ever been taken out of context? Have you ever been taken out of context? Have you ever been misquoted? Or have you ever been misheard? To the point where somebody says, but you said this. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's what I said, but that's not what I was saying. You've been taken out of context. And we see this happen. This this is a normal human thing. The crazy thing is, is that sometimes I think we do this with the scriptures too. Where we look into the Bible and we pull things out, out of context. Where we're seeing what it says, but we're not really seeing what it says. Because we're not looking at the whole situation, okay? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at some out-of-context scriptures. I hope this is fun for you. I enjoy this sort of thing. I like looking into the scripture. I like seeing what it says. There's two words I want to I want to throw out there just to kind of give us some framework for what we're doing today. We won't hang around on this for too long. I just want you to see this real quick, okay? Two main words, and these are in the notes in the bulletin to write down, exegesis and eisegesis. Okay, now these are two big fancy words that basically mean these two things. Exegesis, we have a, there we go, an explanation or a critical interpretation of the text. In other words, you look at the Bible and then you interpret what it says, okay? The second one, which is eisegesis, is where you start with an idea and then you go to the Bible to find things that that prop up your own idea, basically, Okay? One of these starts with me. One of these starts with the scriptures. And what we want to do, the goal, is to let the Bible speak for itself. The Bible is the authority. The Bible holds the truth. We need to see what is it trying to teach us. We know that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. What is it trying to teach us? Another thing, too, the Bible is not a self-help book. In the way that we think of that in our modern age. The Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible is not about accessing your inner potential. Okay? The Bible is not becoming the greatest version of you that you can be. The Bible is about learning about the one true God. And following him. And having a relationship with him. It is God first. It is God-centric. And then we get to know him through the truth contained in the scriptures. So we're going to see some interesting contrasts this morning. So the importance of context. I found, when I was doing my research, I found this, I thought this was a hilarious meme. I'm going to share, with, share this with you this morning because it illustrates how important it is to look at scriptures in context. Meme. There we go. Okay. The importance of context. So let's look at this real quick. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2.21. Okay. Very good. Not everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Matthew 7, 21. Well, this is awkward. I thought that was funny. (laughs) See, the thing is, you could look at these two verses, and if you just isolate them and put them side by side, it looks like there's a conflict. 
right? It looks like they don't jive. However, if we look at them in context rather than bites, okay, we see two things. And I'll explain this quickly. In Acts 2.21, Peter's preaching. He quotes the prophet Joel from the Old Testament who is prophesying about the end times in a big picture scale. He's talking about all these crazy symbolic things that will occur, the trials that are going to happen, and then he says, but in those end times, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who commit themselves to God will be saved. This next one is the words of Jesus. And in that passage, he's talking about false believers. Okay? It's right after the section where he talks about the tree that doesn't bear any fruit. And what he's talking about is people who claim to follow Christ, but have nothing to show for it. It is a very specific thing that he is addressing, and they're not parallel. They're talking about different angles and different subjects. You have to look at the context of which it's spoken. And it goes deeper than that. We could dig into the, the Hebrew, the, the Greek, all that, all that kind of stuff and really break stuff down. But we've got to look at the context. So we're going to do a really quick, fun little countdown. That won't be really quick because I've got a lot to say. But we're going to do a countdown this morning about what I see. This is not the definitive list. This is not the end-all, be-all list. But this is, for me, the top three verses that I see around me frequently taken out of context. I've got like 20 of these. I picked the top three, okay? And I think that this will be fun. Let's see what the Bible really wants to teach us today, all right? We've got our groundwork. Let's get going. I do want to point out that as we look at how these verses are taken out of context, a lot of them seem to relate to personal prosperity, okay? We have this habit, this, and this is, a, this is a cultural specific thing where we really like to take the Bible and use it to tell us how great and prosperous we're going to be if we follow God, okay? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of salesmaning that goes on out there with this kind of language too. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't bless us. I am a recipient of extreme blessings from God, but, but as these verses are going to point out, it goes a lot deeper than this life and what we can get and cling to here. It's a lot deeper. So with that out of the way, number three. Philippians 4.13. What does Philippians 4.13 say? Let's look at this. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Awesome verse. Awesome statement. This was written by the Apostle Paul while he sat Rotting in a Roman prison under lock and key. Sealed off from, the, well, not out of contact with the outside world. He could write letters, but he's, he's being held captive because of his faith. He is actively suffering for Christ. And he writes these words in the end of his letter to the Philippian church. Now, there, that's a wonderful statement. The place where I normally see this crop up is in the, is in the, in the athletics world. Okay, and I'm not a huge sports guy, but I've seen this from time to time. Let me show you a couple of pictures here. So I know that Steph Curry, I guess, likes, is known for kind of writing this verse. Like he puts it on his shoes. He's kind of known for utilizing this scripture. The main one I remember that kind of came to the top of my mind was 
Tim Tebow, who even for a non-sports guy like me, even I know who that is. <laughs> okay? And he's got it written right here on his face. You know, I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's very powerful. And even if you go on Instagram, which I don't recommend because I actually hate Instagram. But if you do... You can search this hashtag of Philippians 4.13 fitness and there's all kinds of people out there that are like, you know, I broke my squat max today, Philippians 4.13 and all this kind of stuff, you know, just kind of plastering that down there. I could do all things. You could, thank you, dear. She's laughing at me. I deserve that. But it's, it's used frequently in this kind of context, you know, like personal power, personal empowerment. And here's, here's what I'm trying to get at, guys, is that we oftentimes use this verse to justify our human ambition, okay? So like, I'm going to break my squat max today and I could do it because I have the power of Christ in me, you know? Or I am going to get that new job and I can do this because I can do anything with Christ who gives me strength. Now here's the thing. I'm not even saying that's necessarily 100% wrong. All right? God does give us strength and God does guide us and God is, does empower us. But is that what Paul in this section of scripture is talking about? Is he trying to tell you that Jesus is going to help you break your squat max? Or is there something deeper going on? Let's look at this. Philippians. We're going to go to the fourth chapter. We're going to read this verse in its context. Okay? We're going to be reading a bit of scripture over the next couple of points. So buckle your Bible belts. Okay? We're going to be getting into some stuff here. We have to. If we're going to look at it in context, we have to see the context. Paul writes, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be... What is that word? Content. Content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for, and why? For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. I have learned to be content under all circumstances. I have learned to be content doing the will of God, whether I'm hungry, whether I'm full, whether I'm suffering, whether I'm fine. In all these circumstances, I am content. Why? Because Christ gives me the strength to be content. Who has ever gone through a rough time? Everybody's hands probably go up right? You know, what happens in those rough times, right? You know, we get, we get depressed, we get angry, we get jealous, we get confused. It's human nature. But Paul is saying in those circumstances, we can still be content because of the power of Christ in us. You see, here, here's the thing with using that verse for us. God's power does not guarantee you a worldly win, okay? You cannot weaponize the power of God for your own benefit. It's his power. He does with it what he wants. Okay? And, he, and, the, and the truth is, he lives inside of us and he does empower us. But I think it cheapens this passage of scripture 
to use it to say, I'm going to break my squat max because it's so much more powerful than that. You have access to a peace that people cannot understand to be content through the power of God. You see, this verse is not about our potential. This verse is about our contentment. This verse is about our contentment. Not about what we can do, but about what God can do through us. Rather than following our ambition, we are called to be like Christ. And what was Christ like? Let's look back really quick at Philippians chapter 2, just a couple of verses. Paul wrote this just a little bit before what we just read. He wrote to the Philippians, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He left that stuff behind. Next slide. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That is what we are called to follow. Doesn't sound much like the kind of ambition that we're accustomed to, the kind of goal setting, the kind of striving and reaching and trying to accomplish things. The Philippians 4.13 we see here is far more about submitting and contentment to the will of God than it is chasing what it is that we want. It's about becoming like Christ. In a world that wants us to be our best selves, which you hear that all the time, access that inner person inside of you, we are called to be like Christ. We are called to be like Christ. So Philippians 4.13, I can be content in all circumstances because God gives me the strength. Number two. Ha ha ha. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's see what this one says. This is going to be a longer chunk, okay? The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, fill in the blank for me. Complete this phrase. God will never give you... More than you can handle or something you can't handle. We hear, how, how many of you have, have used that? I have. I've used that. In, you don't have to raise your hand. You know, I've used that in conversation. Well, I know that God's not going to give me something I can't handle. So I can do this. I got this. I'm strong. I'm capable. We can barrel through. That is not actually even in the scripture. It's not there. Like this, this is a passage that is not only misinterpreted, it's misquoted and misread. We, we've taken, a, in our culture, we've taken this idea that God will provide for us a way to really live a righteous life. And yet somehow we, we've got this sort of safeguard around us and this sense of personal empowerment that we are strong. It becomes about us again and what we are capable of. Context, context, context. Let's look at this. Now, as we go through this next section, I want us to actively read. I want us to see in our mind the picture that Paul is painting with the details of the history he's about to recount. Let's look at this. We're going to the verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10. Paul writes, he says, I don't want you to forget... Dear brothers and sisters, and they know this, by the way. He's just going to give them a history lesson. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. 
All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. Remember Exodus, the Israelites leaving Egypt? Uh, and all, and in, go back one, one slide there, buddy. On dry ground. Okay, in the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Read critically. Yet God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as... A warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. Paul is going down this checklist of what they did and what was the consequence. What they did and what was the consequence. These things happened to them as examples for us. See that? As examples. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you are standing strong, here's where, here's where it all comes together. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. That would be hard to read. I'm sorry. If, if Paul sent that letter to your church, my goodness, that would be a tough one to read. But you see, here's the thing. This verse is about avoiding temptation, not personal empowerment. This is not about how great we are. This is not about how strong we are. This is not about how capable we are. This is not about I got this and I'm not going to have more than I can handle. No, this verse is about living a righteous life. This verse is a warning of the dangers of sin and a call to pursue righteousness. That's what this is. He goes through the list. Look what they did. Look what happened. It's an example. It's a warning. Learn from it. So let's look at some takeaways, okay? Because there's a couple of key things that I think we could pull out of here and we could start making sense of right now. What can we learn from this passage? Well, the first thing we can learn, and Paul starts the verse with this statement, we are all tempted. Everybody is tempted. If you are a human living in this world, you are going to be tempted with things that threaten to take you and pull you away from God. It's going to happen, okay? We are all tempted. And not only are we all tempted, he says temptation is a common experience. The things that you, look at back then. Look at some of the crazy things they were tempted to do back then. Worshiping idols, incredible sexual sin, unbelievable things. And guess what? We fight the same temptations now. But God will make a way, okay? God will make a way. The power is in his hands. He cares so much 
that you are able to live a righteous life. And he wants so badly for us to be close to him that he will always create a way to avoid the temptation in his power. In his power. There are going to be things in life. You know, we might have troubles in our marriage. You might have financial troubles. You know, car breaks down. Things happen. Stuff goes wrong. And that stuff can be very hard. And there's other places in Scripture that talk about how to deal with some of these situations. But in this verse, our takeaway is temptation's going to come and God loves you enough to give you a way out. Okay? That was number two. Let's wrap up with number three. The biggest one. My favorite. And, and very interesting here too. Now, oh, there it is. Ah! Spoiled my, spoiled my surprise. It's okay. You'll know what this is. Did anybody go to a graduation ceremony this year? High school, college? Really? Is that all? Wow. Okay. So if you've been even around people that have graduated, if you're, I'm guessing if you've maybe even watched TV about graduations, you probably heard this verse. This is the favorite graduation verse right here. What does it say? Let's look at it. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you future and a hope. Boy, does that sound encouraging, doesn't it? Boy, that sounds good. But what is the context? You see, th this is a very unique verse. I've even heard this verse used as almost, almost like it has magical properties. Like I could go in to somebody's hospital room and speak this over them. You know, God's got, and, and somehow this is going to like incur, and it bring them to healing or something like that. I've seen it used in that way. And I'm telling you that this verse, and this goes for anything like this. This verse is not some kind of magic spell. We don't just stick this on ourselves or, or make this like a, a banner on Facebook and like everything's just going to be great. You know, this is part of that ideology that if we come to Christ, it's smooth sailing. But let's remember what Jesus himself said. If we go to Matthew 5.45 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus very specifically said, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Everybody's going to get rained on. We've said that before. Trials are going to come. In John 16.33, Jesus says this. He says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have what? Many trials and sorrows. Sad stuff. But take heart because I have overcome the world. You see, to really understand this passage, we have to look at a guy named Hananiah. Hananiah was a false prophet. And Hananiah, you see, the Israelites were in captivity. They were under the control of Babylon. They wanted their, they wanted their kingdom restored. And Hananiah comes along and he starts telling the people what they want to hear. He came along and said, I have a word from the Lord. He said, this will all be over in two years. And all the treasures that were taken will be returned. And it will all be over. And this is from the Lord. And the Lord goes to the prophet Jeremiah and says, you go tell Hananiah his time is up. For he has rebelled against me. And then he gives Jeremiah a true word to give to the people of Israel. And this is what Jeremiah writes in chapter 29. 
Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who'd been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiachin, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. Time stamps it. This is when this happened. Skip on down to verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Dig in, make a home. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Skip on down to verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you future and a hope. Next one. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. Now see, the the tough thing is, the you in this verse is not you and me. This is very specifically written to the people of Israel who were enduring misery at this time but God steps in with a word of truth and he comes in and he says you are going to suffer the people that this was revealed to wouldn't even live to see it fulfilled 70 years but what can we learn from this let's look God sees the outcome and this is true for all of us No matter where you sit, no matter where I sit, God knows what's coming down the pipeline. He knows what is headed your way. And God's goal is restoration. God's goal is to bring us close to Him. And even if we endure a life of consistent hardship, trial, trouble, misery, when it ends, what happens? Victory. No matter what, if we know Christ, it is victory. You see, the scriptures emphasize providence, not prosperity. God's interaction in our lives, God's provision, God working inside of each and every one of us. Because, you see, God's goal, God's goal is not to make us wealthy, but it's to bring us home. And who cares if we're wealthy if we get to go home? Mark 8, 36, Christ said these words. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? What do you have? Paul in Philippians 3.8, I want to point out two words. He calls everything of this world worthless garbage compared to knowing Christ. Christ is everything. Now, I have made a quick little chart here that kind of shows some of the 
the contrasts, you know, when we look at things out of context and when we look at things in context. And I know we're, we're kind of buttoned up towards the end of our time here. I don't know if you have time to fill this in. If you want this, maybe I can throw this up on Facebook or something like that. But I want us to see when we take things for our own use, they become about us. But when we look at things in the way they were intended, who are they about? About God. That's what the Bible speaks to us today. And in the, in the book of Hebrews 13, verse 5, we'll end with this. He writes, don't love money. Don't love the things of this world. Don't let that captivate your heart. Don't let that take you over. Be satisfied. You could say content <laughs> with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time that we've had today. Lord, I just pray that we would learn from your word. I pray that we would appreciate what it is that you have to teach us. And I pray that as we study, as we read, as we explore what it is that you're trying to teach us, God, that we would take it for what you intended it to mean. God, please keep us from reading into things that would, you know, what we want to see, but help us to be able to see what it is that you want us to learn. Lord, we're just so thankful for how you desire to restore us, how you desire that relationship with us. God, it's just unfathomable all the wonderful things that you have done. And we just hope, or we just pray that as we move forward every single day, we can draw closer and closer to you. It's in your most holy name that I pray. Amen.